You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, I'm Gino Borges, curator of the Journey to Impact podcast series. We have Gita Ayer joining us today. Gita combines over 30 years of experience in finance with a passion for environmental and social justice, president and founder of Boston Common, which is a women-led and majority employee-owned asset management firm, which works to advance the global dialogue on sustainable growth and encourages responsible corporate conduct within a market framework. Look forward to asking you what that means in terms of working within a market framework. Has previously served on the board of directors of the Sierra Club Foundation and Earthworks. She's also a member of Tonic, which is a global action community for impact investors. And I'm proud to announce this conversation with Gita is brought to you as part of a partnership between Poetry of Impact and Tonic. Welcome, Gita. Thank you, Gino. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, thank you. We feel very fortunate to um, have your voice as a part of this conversation. And I always like to um, start with where people are at in terms of what's occupying you these days. I know that uh, you've been in the media in regards to your long-term work in terms of helping with um, the advocacy around dropping the Redskins name. So that was a high profile uh, piece by you. And then now, and now you're working on the, um, it seems like you're working in terms of capturing this convergence between the market collapsing and uh, social equity regarding uh, evictions and so forth. But rather than talk about where you're at from a topical work perspective, where are you just from a perspective of like, uh, you know, in terms of where you're at in life, what are your days looking like? I mean, we're sort of coming out of this weird sort of COVID moment where it seemed like it was normalized and now it's surging. Just want to give a feel for the listeners of where where you're at and what you're working on these days. I mean, on the one hand, I feel really, very lucky, very fortunate to be able to work from home in a field I love um, and with, you know, relatively speaking, few changes to the way things were. At the same time, I'm very, very mindful of the fact that how the inequalities that were already existing have widened, how um, urgent uh, the need for uh, action uh, to address that, as well as um, kind of the convergence of uh, health, health and well-being with climate change and inequality kind of uh, all um, there for us to see, even as market participants are tempted to dismiss such events as one-off um, black swan events that caught them by surprise. Um, so the push towards lending um, finance with environmental and social justice, thank you for that 
very good introduction or detailed introduction of, that you just gave me but like that has always been at the core of where i think and so the need for that seems even more urgent and calls on us to be that much more intentional and forceful and tenacious in our engagements to to make a difference where does this come from i mean is was there a particular event in your past where it's like i'm going to be active in changing life not just for myself but for others i mean can you talk a little bit about your background that led it's not easy to be an activist it really isn't and specifically i'm going to want to drop into this the kind of activism that you're doing is is like going right after the power you're going right after the finance you're going right after the the roots of finance which have enormous interest holders, uh, stakeholders that benefit from inertia. And so let's begin with the first part in terms of what happened along the way in terms of when like you came into the world and what moment in time or series of events led you to say like, no, this isn't right and this is what I want to do. And then to have the fortitude to actually do it. Um, I grew up uh, in India. I'm an immigrant. Um, I came here to go to graduate school. So I grew up in Calcutta and Delhi. Um, I grew up in you know, middle class, very aware of how fortunate we were because around us there were, you know, clearly children who had so much less. And uh, we could feel the sense of being so, um, so lucky to have the, you know, stable home that I had. The, you know, we didn't have much, but we had more than enough. You know, we had enough. And my parents placed a great value on education, um, though it was a culture in which women typically are not valued as highly. They never made us feel that way. They um, scrounged, I know, and, and stretched the budget to make uh, education very possible for us. Um, I always felt that need to, uh, that sense of fortune, being fortunate comes with the flip side of recognizing that you've been given so much and that you could, you should make a difference to, and it, it would be possible for us to make a difference. Uh, uh, so little could change the trajectory for so many. Mm. And that always stayed with me. I went to Catholic schools from K through 12. I was educated by nuns. So um, after fourth grade, I think it was all girls school. And uh, they were powerful uh, role models. I'm, a, I'm not a Catholic myself, but um, that's the kind of country India is. My parents thought parochial education was cheaper than private school and um, better quality or more discipline than public schools. So they, they saved up to spend on that, to send us there. But then, but what we developed was a sense of, again, a connection to others, a sense of, um, of broader you know, social justice, and, um, and also a, as a women's school, uh, as a girls' school, and then um, for the first few years of college as well, I was in women's college, there wasn't anything we thought we couldn't do. We didn't internalize those self-censoring things that uh, I think sometimes limit women uh, so I, I, I knew that India was not a very um, good place for the average woman, but if you were determined and you put your mind to it and you could be above average, um, 
I always felt that we could do anything. We could change anything. I came to graduate school uh, to go to Harvard Business School, very traditional background uh, in finance. And um, um, and that led me to work in a consulting firm in, in the Boston area. And I think it was just meant to be. I got to write a report on South Africa divestment. This was the time in the mid eighties when the students were building shanty towns on campus. And so suddenly the, the siloed view of finance was being challenged by students who were saying, um, how can you be profiting from this? And how can you be condoning and supporting um, apartheid? And one thing led to another. I did my chartered financial analyst course when I was there. I then found work in a firm and we had a practice where we were pioneering in, in investing with um, South Africa free guidelines, but then also environmental and uh, justice uh, guidelines. Um, many of my early clients were mission-driven or values-driven. So mission-driven organizations faith-based organizations or values-oriented investors, people who had protested the Vietnam War and didn't want weapons in their portfolio or Dow Chemical in their portfolio, this type of stuff. I got, I got the second part of what, um, so already I was integrating or thinking about managing with considerations beyond just the bottom line based on what our clients were asking for. Um, I think the biggest single guide for me was that I realized that if I could listen to what they were asking, instead of telling them um, it can't be done or it shouldn't be done or it's bad for your financial health to think about all these things, instead hear what they're asking for and use my creativity to figure out how to meet that need in ways that would be you know, uh, faithful to the financial goals that they had, but also uh, in line with the way they were expressing their concerns for the world. So I almost we took it and ran with it a little bit towards environmental and other considerations. And I'll talk a little more about that. Another great thing happened to me at this time. I was a lowly analyst and portfolio manager in about 1992-93. And I got my first taste of uh, share owner engagement of actually talking to companies, what you correctly called talking to power. <laughs> um, a, a stock that I had recommended and that we owned called Albertsons, which is a supermarket chain, um, uh, was, was a name that I liked a fair amount. One of their competitors, Lucky Stores, was sued and there was a long drawn drag out fight and a landmark 100 million plus uh, settlement was awarded to the class action lawsuit filed by women working in a supermarket chain, saying they were always bypassed for managerial roles. I mean, if you wanted to be totally sexist, you would think women could be managers in a supermarket, right? I mean, I could not see any reason why that would be, mm -hmm. but, and so clearly did the judge, the, the, law, the judges clearly agreed with that. But it gave me the opportunity to ask, just as a good analyst to our, our holding, Albertsons, what are you doing to prevent such a lawsuit because uh, clearly you are vulnerable and this is a big risk for us as shareholders. I think I touched a nerve because the process of having this conversation led to 
some of the top management from there flying out from Boise, Idaho, where the company was, all the way to Boston. You know, I was, I don't know, in my early 30s, and I was heading to to have so much, uh, you know, so much power in a way. Um, But they wanted to address, and I realized the unique reach and unique voice that engaged shareholders can have. Um, we are not in the zero-sum relationship as a protest organization or an NGO. Um, we are on the same side as company management in a way because we are investors. We want the company to thrive and prosper and do better. So the voice of, uh, this is why I, I think the use of the term market framework uh, makes a little bit of sense, which is that it is, um, it's not advocating for a zero-sum change, but really pointing out how it is in the best interest to, to follow or take steps. So the path to long-term sustainable returns and better risk management runs through the well-being of stakeholders, which may be employees, which may be customers, which may be the environment, which could be society at large. And so um, it was an aha moment for me, and I, um, and I realized that we could do much more in that way. Um, so that was my first um, uh, foray into this. Do you see that, um, from what I hear you saying, is that you're actually approaching it as if like, guys, it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not just an impact investor um, for the sake of impact investing. I see impact as a risk variable for you, for, for all of us. And do you find that sort of to be sort of a common ground that because that is the language of one dimensional traditional finance, like they're obsessed with risk, right? And impact investing always comes across as like an accoutrement, something you add on is a takeaway. uh, It's just going to suck up time, attention and so forth. But it seems like you're reconfiguring, reframing it for people. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like we do want to do financially well. And that's why we're here, because what you're currently doing is exposing us to risk that we don't want to be exposed to. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. And and over time, what it grew to be is that we could also point out that by having a diverse team, by having a team that had, uh, you know, uh, voice participation, inclusion, um, and diverse perspectives, that they could do better. This, you know, over the years, the language, the framing, the academic research to underpin this has all allowed us to not just go to the kind of uh, risk side, but also to the opportunity side. That the better managed, uh, the companies that fare better, that have better financial outcomes, return on investments, um, profitability, growth, are ones where diversity is valued, prized, and at the center of the plate, at the center of what they're in the business of doing. So yes, you're right. We don't want to talk about it as a sidebar or, a, you know, Alice used to say, like, pickle on the side or something else, you know, like uh, dressing on the side. I I definitely wanted to think of it as the middle of what they're about. You also find that you have much greater odds of success if the, if the, if the case can be grounded, not just in writing past wrongs or in be good because it's the right way to be, you may be coming from that place or your clients might be coming from that place, but the, but the framing of it with, with both um, the financial integrity. So we often worked in coalitions. We had 
mm. NGOs, people with great domain knowledge, great insight uh, that we have partnered with. Uh, we were the financial voice, the partner, financial partner. And we, we continue to work in that same way. Uh, we've worked with Greenpeace on, on environmental issues. We've worked with a number of uh, uh, NGOs on these um, social justice issues. And we are dusting off some of those models. Um, and we worked with indigenous uh, people's groups and Native American groups when we did the engagement on the name change that you identified, the sports team. Um, and, and sometimes they're long drawn conversations, but we stand with the knowledge that uh, of the issues. And then we come to it with um, financial credibility and a financial voice. Mm. Once, once I remember I said it like a joke that we were always taught to speak truth to power. But I think if uh, power cannot hear you, speak finance to power. They can always hear you. <laughs> That's true. They, they will. They can always hear you when you speak that. Um, Love it. <laughs> so yeah. um, I, I think one of the that is one of the things that is right and gives us a lot of uh, power, but also is what's wrong with our system that so yeah. much has become financialized. Our very language has become financialized. Our terminologies have become financialized. And you can harness that power and use it to your advantage, even while thinking that it's all is not well, that it shouldn't be in this way. This way. Um, another thing that we fight against is really the short-term versus the long-term. And that is um, another you know, challenge created in part by the way, financial framing has worked. Um, a lot of investors look at the future and model it like the past um, and use the past to drive many different scenarios which they can project to the future to imagine it. When you are standing as we are right now in such trans, you know, transforming moments, such disruptive times where the past is, has never been less relevant to thinking about the future. That's right, yeah. Right? That, yeah. that we um, are sometimes hobbled by uh, financial thinking. And so I definitely feel that uh, even as we translate environmental and social issues into financial terms, we should be empowering ourselves and strengthening ourselves from the thought processes, from the framings that come from these other disciplines to finance. And uh, uh, a very obvious and you know straightforward example uh, in my mind has always been the conversation around climate. Or you know some of our long-standing engagements have been with bank uh, banks on their underwriting and lending to uh, fossil fuels, even while it has become you know apparent to anyone who wants to read that if we burn everything that we already know, we will not have a planet to live on. So you know we're really saying. And at the same time, there's this enormous investment opportunity in the form of energy efficiency, renewable power. So we're not saying don't lend and shrink and disappear because we're investors. We want you to grow and prosper. We're instead saying, don't do this, do that. It's sort of, we were talking about raising children. It's exactly like that. We like, we love you. We don't agree with this thing that you're doing. You know, have you thought of doing that? That's exactly the conversation we have, which is, uh, which is important because the incentive structures we have created inadvertently um, are driven by the 
horizon of the person originating the loan or the person running the company, but investors and their beneficiaries actually are investing for the long-term future. So they have a time horizon and a perspective that is different from the from you know the person originating the loan has collected their commission and disappeared, and the person running the firm may have some incentives tied to short-term profitability, and they've moved on, collected their bonuses, and moved on. But the time horizon of the investor has always got to be that of their beneficiaries, and that time horizon is about assuring them not only returns but also a quality of life. So uh, we used to be taught to inflation adjust uh, the returns, right? We used to be taught in traditional finance that, um, that when these people go to spend this money, we have to keep up with inflation. They have to be able to afford uh, these goods and services uh, at that time. And I think that we vastly underestimated uh, whether the quality of what we can buy for that money would be available at these prices. So if you end up uh, having to pay for air, having to pay for water, having to pay for uh, the kind of food you want, much in a very different way, or that it's not even available for purchasing, what have we done in the process? And so, so I feel like the shortcomings of financial framing are also with us as we, even as we use finance as strength and sure. power. Yeah. So um, how how do you um you know I mean here's sort of a grammar of impact question uh like how big of a stake do you have to take into FedEx for instance in order to actually start that conversation before like is there sort of a uh, a dollar limit or percentage sort of take that you realize like hey no one's really going to listen to us until we actually get to this level um, because it did take from my understanding, it took like 12 years. Um, you know, FedEx gets a letter from your firm. They're probably, okay, they need to, like how many letters do they need to get before they actually pick up the phone? Like this person's serious. It's like, because I really don't want to call Daniel Snyder and really say, look, Daniel, I need to have this awkward conversation yeah. <laughs> uh, with you. Yes. Um, and so yes. sort, sort of take us through a little bit of the mechanics and just sort of the muddy, just the mud and the slog of it all in terms of, and maybe yeah. use the FedEx right. example. I mean, that was a long, I mean, that was yeah. a long game. That was a long game. And uh, in a way it is uh, unique in that it was a quest for a human rights uh, correction, uh, not, you know, a little bit different from the risk and reward uh, kinds of things we were talking about. Um, mm. It also had, um, a, uh, a very particularly uh, dogged owner uh, of the team and, you know, and some legal and other support that need not have gone their way, but it did and, and essentially um, took much longer. So that one I felt was unique in, its, um, in, in how long it took, but we strengthened ourselves, our hand, by building larger coalitions. So our ownership is important. Um, our credibility in the field and the fact that we have uh, long been very reasonable and people to act with uh, or to people to engage with um, ensures that the phone calls are returned, the outreach is returned. There are ways to escalate, including filing shareholder proposals, uh, which have you know modest thresholds of ownership. But we always we 
try very hard to instead reach a change uh, without um, resorting to that because that is uh, that is almost um, it is a good threat and a good important uh, tool in our toolkit, but it's not the only one. And where we work globally, uh, the shareholder rights in different countries could be very different. So we have uh, almost evolved a framework of engaging with companies with knowledge, with um, credibility, with the potential of a very large coalition of investors behind us. So in on many of the issues we engage uh, we are building global coalitions of people, of investors who are willing to give us essentially the support with their shares and their market value. So a trillion dollar coalition would be something that we could build uh, and we, we could pull together for uh, engagement. So the I, I mentioned earlier, we stand on the shoulders of NGOs and activist groups. We also stand on the shoulders of um, of the engaged investors globally, where we might be leading the dialogue, but the, the voice is much amplified by their power and their dollars. So it's very, uh, very different in that way. I will say that uh, there comes inevitably a tipping point when this fight is no longer worth it, when they let go and they um, uh, move to this side. Uh, in I, I prefer to think of other uh, situations, for example, where we might have been engaging with a bank um, we engaged with uh, PNC Bank, which is Pittsburgh National, and um, they sit at the edge of Appalachia and they were uh, underwriting mountaintop removal, blasting the mountains to wild mine coal. And we had a, a dialogue with them again around why finance this. And, uh, you know, there could be regulation, there could be um, a change in consumer preference in, time, in terms of what type of uh, fuels are used for power generation and that you might be underwriting loans which are appearing today to be less risky and in the long term, you're not pricing it properly. And the portfolio effect that you're hoping for to diversify may not be entirely there because all of the loans are correlated at that point if the industry is regulated or, or falls apart for a variety of reasons because the other fossil fuels or renewables take their place. So um, after much resistance and a a few annual meetings, shareholder proposals, et cetera, there's that tipping point. What happens when the tipping point happens is that they realize that you have something that they could learn from. You have talked with all their peers. You have, you know what the state of play is. So a visionary or farsighted management, a management that is um, understands the benefit of this would partner with us and would uh, and it's come such a long way I mean uh, today the idea that banks should report on uh, climate exposure has become well understood and accepted uh, there are uh, standards of what they need to report and in fact most exciting of all there is an organization or an association of lending and financial institutions where they combine to be creative, share best practice, and challenge each other, and create a race to the top. So to me, that ecosystem, when that develops, we have accomplished something because we have made this move from this annoying issue that a, a pesky shareholder keeps asking me about to something that we ought to, uh, and these are competitive people. They didn't get to be in the corner office without being ambitious competitors. Sure. So when they, when we have helped establish, so we may be first the tenacious 
um, persistent shareholders. We need that. We need metrics that make sense, good data that makes it possible to compare uh, relevant things. Yeah, so you don't count the things that are easy to count instead of what really matters, um, and uh, or instead of what counts, as they say. So um, we we create better metrics, and then they create, and there there comes to be an ecosystem where calibration and annual uh, best practice sharing and uh, and competitiveness can lean in that direction. This is what we hope to achieve with issues of gender and diversity and inclusion, with uh, you know with efficiency, um, with a whole host of, of with even digital human rights in the in the technology space. We want to see a a uh, the redirection of the incredible creativity and uh, and uh, knowledge that uh, companies have uh, towards places which could be um, both managing of the risks yeah. but also excitingly the creation of the solutions because the sustainable development goals which now have become much more widely known and accepted uh, require the participation not just of governments and NGOs but also corporate actors companies are bigger than many countries so they they need to be part of that and the realization that these are um, areas where disruptive solutions are possible, where revenue growth and consumer loyalty and pricing power are available. Just lapsing back into financial speak for a minute, you know, you mm-hmm. want to make the case for why this is worth doing. Um, this is the this is what companies, um, I think, you know, uh, empowered by uh, ambitious uh, shareholders and and insistent shareholders asking for a transition plan, conveying that sense of impatience. So for a long time, you rightly pointed out, we had been very patient investors with uh, willing to go for improvements year to year. I think what is changing, even in our approaches in the in this environment or today, is that sense of urgency of we don't have the time to gradually uh, make changes. We want transition plans. We don't want just broad commitments out 10 years. I hear you connecting an enormous amount of dots and you have an extensive history of like traditional finance and blending it with uh, these activist um, models um, that focus on wholeness and not, uh, hey, I'm going to take this away from you, but it's like you are literally trying to honor the full capacity of humanity in essence and the full capacity of the earth and saying, hey, look, the way we're traditionally doing business here is only allowing a fraction of our capacity to be amplified, only a fraction of our life force to be experienced. Um, part of the, a significant part of the earth is dying. So too is a significant part of the social soul as a result of this economic system. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, that said, there needs to, now you as a person, a non-finance person, there's a certain amount of grief that just comes with knowing that, okay? So not everybody knows what you know. And take us through how you sort of practice and, and work with being aware of these ongoing shortcomings. There are going to be shortcomings even after we leave the planet when like our time is done as well. Take us a little bit through like, um, potential like grief that 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 you work with and how and how you work with it and relatedly like 
what are you really working on when you like look at everything and go, I wish if I only had this particular way of being in the world or expressing myself, oh, I'd be able to get so much further and do so much more. I would just be, um, I would be able to feel my life force more. And I guess I just want to be conscious of the fact that that you're more than just a working being that's doing this. I mean, there, I mean, there's a soul inside this um, body of yours. Can you help us sort of, yeah, sort of color that in for us a little bit? Sure. Um, uh, for me, that was a very, first of all, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I'm an immigrant. So I have seen how, um, how extractive, how damaging corporate, conduct has been um, uh, globally. I also, you know, um, my father worked in the chemical sector. He was a chemist. All his life, he did made products that I cannot agree with. Explosives, chemical fertilizers, um, DDT, pesticides, you know, you name it. So um, there's a huge part of me that I am, I think, on some sort of uh, personal journey. Um, and it was it was always there. And then when I heard Jim Hansen, who's my really all-time hero, who is the NASA scientist who spoke about climate change, what I realized is that I had moved from the places that were going to be submerged um, to, or harmed through exceptional, intolerable heat and water shortages to the place where a lot of the responsibility for it lies. Um, Per capita, our carbon emissions are unacceptably high. I think more recently, Oxfam has uh, come out with data showing how the emissions of the top 1% are twice the emissions of the bottom 50% of the planet. So there's also the um, inequality internal to each of the economies or countries that is, again, perpetuated. But like we are, uh, I have joined. I, when I first heard Jim Hansen, I went to give talks in the emerging markets. I went to India to give talks. And what I got is the right feedback that, uh, why are you talking to us? You know, I wanted to say, this is what is in store. Do not develop in the same way, you know, do things differently. And they were like, why aren't you talking to the people you live with to lower the, because the reality is that we need to be making room in the planet's carbon budget for the basic necessities of the rest of the world to be met. And I, I felt immediate. So from that point on, I have thrown the rest of my uh, time and being. I was part of the Keystone Pipeline protests. I have been part of the uh, you know, overall climate marches. Um, and I have been uh, aware of the, uh, of the inequalities and the top of the pyramid versus bottom. I've been part of Black Lives Matter protests from the Eric Garner uh, protests, you know, and I feel like the same sense of uh, of frustration uh, that you you know you articulated even on the engagement side, which is that six years ago we were saying I can't breathe, and six years later we are saying I can't breathe. You know, like some things mm. uh, are taking too long uh, to change. So there had to be other tools at work. What else could I do? So I am I joined the board. Of, I served on the board of the Sierra Club Foundation. I, now on the board of the NRDC, Natural Resource Defense Council. I, uh, I feel like I could contribute to the environmental organizations from the finance and the investment side by being part of that. I'm not the person in the, in the 
in the trenches of what they do, but I can certainly enable some of that. I have uh, I joined the board and served on to field build because I want investors to wake up and and like activate themselves as a muscle because we are um, equally at fault for lobbying and preventing uh, climate policies from coming into, into play. So corporate entities, corporate if if policy in the United States is not going to move, then we need. Um, corporations and investors to be the verticals that will stand up and be those responsible pillars uh, for moving things forward. I've also, um, and this is part of my journey into Tonic, is that I've realized that my own personal investments, in addition to the marketable investments, which you know I believe are tackling systemic risks, which you can't divest and can't diversify away, uh, which you must tackle, but also that there are clear direct investments that need to be made to help the places we love, the people we love, care for, that will sustain them in these difficult times. So there's charitable giving or philanthropy, and then there's, uh, you know, uh, base of the pyramid, but also always with environmental justice lens, in my case, also, or gender justice lens um, uh, support that I have tried to espouse. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I feel that... Um, I feel that it's actually even more uh, dramatically important for us. We are the generation, in a way, that um, that has and and that has um, been part of this under our watch and with full knowledge. We have overseen this worsening, and because I kind of started where I did in the emerging markets and came here, I feel like I've traversed a couple of lifetimes. Right, so mm-hmm. there is a voice. I think that every immigrant must bring uh, to the table, which is that we expected something. You know, we became, I chose, I did not choose my religion. I have to be born a Hindu, you don't convert. Um, I didn't choose a lot of things in my life, but I chose my citizenship. And I feel that therefore my expectation of what must happen is that much higher. And I'm much less willing to sit by. And so, um, so I feel that um, given whatever, uh, as, a, as a teacher, as a parent, as a citizen, as a, you know, whatever your, the hat you're wearing, whichever time of day you're, you're functioning, that uh, as a consumer, as an as a advocate of so many different kinds, with capital and with voice, right, we need to lean in. Uh, we just can't be, we need to, Kind of challenge ourselves to to not self censor and to not be uh, willing to settle for um, long timelines and limited modifications. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's a beautiful place to um, just put a soft wrap up. I will ask you if there's anything that came up for you during our conversation. Is like, oh, I really sort of. I would like to just explore that a bit or share that with an audience because I think you really summed up at the heart of your essence on that last response. But I do want to give you an opportunity because I know I bounce around a little bit based on just being excited on where the conversation is going. Is there something else you would like to um, share that came up uh, for you? And if not, no worries as well. Well, I think you asked a question about self-care and that is something that is uh, key at this point, because one of the things that um, 
uh, that again also comes from some of the you know Eastern ways of thinking that you can uh, there are some things you can change and some other things you must accept and that that um, uh, not at the cost of being an active engaged citizen but really to the point of where uh, you feel like you've tried your best and you have peace with yourself. Um, I think that that um, that's equally as important, particularly important, I think, in current conditions where I feel we're all a little bit isolated, frustrated, feeling mm-hmm. um, feeling uh, unable or limited in what we can do, um, and to 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 savor, accept, and uh, enjoy, you know, some pieces of what we have uh, yeah. to sort of uh, to recognize that good fortune, even as we, even as we uh, strive to change it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you, Gita. You have, that last point really touches on the balance between both, you know, um, what I refer to as the existential balance sheet. There's just many debits as credits. And I mean, we have to sometimes remind ourselves of what is happening just as much as what is not happening. Um, it's very easy for us to live in the world of negation as impact investors or people with intentionality because we're seemingly and not, not so seemingly actively trying to solve problems. And activism can also form into, when there's no self-care, it can form into a type of personal compensation, which I think is often untalked about in a lot of ways, right? And it's rather than dealing with and sort of understanding your inner world, um, and the outer world acting together. Sometimes people are just acting out on the world without really understanding uh, where sort of that's, that base or that source is. And I think what really sticks out for me is how you, with that particular uh, way of being in the world, couple it with being at the root of finance. I mean, you're trained in traditional finance you had your moment, you sort of met your moment in your 30s and realized like, wow, there's more to this puzzle potentially that can have humanity and ecology incorporated into it, which started off as a business risk variable, but all of a sudden it expands into it's like, wow, yeah, it's a business risk, but it's also just a, a, an existential lifetime risk is like, why are we here? Like, what? what are we here to do besides inspiriting ourselves to be full loving creatures on earth and, and caretakers both for each other, for ourselves and for, and for the earth. So thank you so much on blending the beauty between the grammar, which I know you're very gifted in. And I mean, we can talk hard metrics and finance as well all day long, but the intention here was really to sort of understand your story and relationship to um, the work that you're doing in the world. So thank you so much. Thank you, Gino. And appreciate this journey that I was able to, to share with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.